Let's uh, pause to pray once more. Father in heaven, you are God all the time. You are God who is with us 24-7 in every season, in every joy, in every difficulty of our lives. You have promised, and you, your promise is always true, that you will be with us. And you have been, Lord. You will be. You are right now. Father, we get into circumstances sometimes that disorient us and that cause us to wonder and cause us to despair at times even. But we thank you that you are the God victorious. You are the God whose power is always at work. You are the one who is working out in your sovereign plan every detail of history, including our stories, our lives. And so, Father, we trust you. We love you. And now as we open your word once more, we pray, Spirit, come, speak to our hearts, encourage us, direct and steer us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It had been five generations since the time of David. And now the king who ruled over Judah was a man named Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat managed to rule in Judah for about 25 years. And the record of his reign includes lots of good stuff. Especially in the early years of his kingship, Jehoshaphat demonstrated a real zeal for Yahweh, God of Israel. We read in 2 Chronicles 17 that Jehoshaphat did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments. And that same chapter reports that Jehoshaphat's heart was courageous in the ways of Yahweh, as Jehoshaphat worked to banish idols from Judah. Another thing Jehoshaphat did is he sent out a team of 16 men to teach the Torah throughout the territory of Judah. And Jehoshaphat also built up store, stores of supplies in Judah. He strengthened the judicial system during his reign in the land. And he also greatly fortified Judah's armed forces. But for all that good, a red flag in Jehoshaphat's reign was that he made an unwise alliance with the, that Baal-worshipping king that we heard about last week, that king in the north, King Ahab. Together, these two kings, Jehoshaphat and Ahab, went against the prophetic word of Yahweh, they went together to battle against Ramoth Gilead with disastrous results. Ahab was killed. Jehoshaphat managed to get safely back home to Jerusalem. But when he did, he was met with a prophetic rebuke. In 2 Chronicles 19.2, Jehu the seer came to Jehoshaphat and said this, should you help the wicked and help those who hate Yahweh? So Jehoshaphat's ill-advised alliance with deceased Ahab had amounted to helping the wicked and helping someone 
who hated Yahweh, certainly a knock against Jehoshaphat. Well, with King Ahab in the north now dead, the surrounding nations decided now to strike while the iron was hot. And we're jumping in here at 2 Chronicles 20, verse 1. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. There are three people groups, notice, mentioned in this verse. The Moabites and Ammonites had both been subdued generations before by David. But now they see this golden opportunity under Jehoshaphat's reign to dispense with Israel's yoke. They form an alliance to attack Israel, and some of the Munites join up with them. We're not in, entirely sure about the precise identity of these Munites, but later in the chapter they are called men of Mount Seir. And Mount Seir is associated with the Edomites. But whatever the case, this alliance that has formed against Israel, we need to note, is a formidable force. A formidable force. Numerically speaking, this is a gigantic group of soldiers, even though we're ne never given, in the, in the story at least, we're never given the precise number of the troops. In verse 2, Jehoshaphat is given an intelligence report. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat. Now, just so we understand, the identity of the some men is not given here in order to protect their identities because they're working with army intelligence. <laughs> okay? Some men. These guys say to their king, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom and from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hatzatzon Tamar, that is, En Gedi. So Jehoshaphat gets good intelligence here, complete with location names. The invading alliance is approaching Judah from the southern end of the Dead Sea. And right now they are camped out at that oasis of palm trees called Hatzatzon Tamar. Now this is obviously, if we think about this, some, some threatening news. Threatening news for Jehoshaphat. A question for you. What happens to you in the moment when you receive threatening news? Maybe you're like Jehoshaphat. The first part of verse 3 tells us that Jehoshaphat was afraid, notice, upon hearing this intelligence report. Fear came over the king as he learned that now a gigantic army had assembled getting ready to invade Judah. This is a very human reaction to threatening news, is it not? Being afraid, being fearful. I think we resonate with Jehoshaphat. If we learned that Canada was about to be invaded by some massive army, some alliance of nations, we would probably be afraid. 
When the doctor calls you in and gives you terrible news about your health, you might be instantly afraid. When you learn suddenly that you are being fired from your job and you have no savings, fear is quite normal. But friends, what we need to note very well here is that verse 3 does not end with Jehoshaphat's fear. It goes on to tell us that even as he was afraid, Jehoshaphat took action. He set his face to do what? To seek Yahweh, Lord, and fast throughout all Judah. Now, this is so instructive for us, I think. It's, it's easy for many of us. Just think about your own life. It's easy for, for many of us to become paralyzed in our fear, to become passive, even, in our moments of fear. But, but Jehoshaphat, even as he experiences fear, he was afraid, he gets on his face before the Lord, and he proclaims this nationwide Fast, Jehoshaphat turns to the Lord in his fear. Though hosts encamp around me, firm to the fight I stand. What terror can confound me with God at my right hand? Now, what makes this really amazing is that just three chapters earlier, 2 Chronicles 17, 13 and following, we were told there that the army that Jehoshaphat managed to muster numbered 1.16 million troops. So Jehoshaphat himself had a very sizable and very impressive army. So that we would almost expect verse 2 to read something like this. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and assembled his army and organized his weapons arsenal. But what verse 2 is showing us, friends, is that Jehoshaphat, well aware of his huge army, is not relying on that army. Yes? He will rely on God. Jehoshaphat knows that the priority here, the priority is to rely on God, even having such a sizable army as he does. My believing friend, when you go in for quadruple bypass surgery, you rely on God in that moment. You focus on him, even with all that high-tech, impressive cardiac equipment and the surgeon's credentials in play, you rely on God. Jehoshaphat seeks the Lord, and he declares this nationwide fast. What does a fast show? Well, it shows that your soul is stretching up to God that you are depending on God, that you are surrendered to God. And then in verse 4, notice we have this beautiful description of the nation coming together. 
Notice. And Judah assembled to seek help from Yahweh. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek Yahweh. Now, for us to really get the amazement of this verse and what's happening here, let's put it into contemporary terms, just so we can understand and see how great this would be. And Canada assembled to seek help from the Lord. From Victoria and Calgary and Dawson City and Saskatoon and Brandon and Toronto and Montreal and Antigonish. All of Canada came to seek the Lord. Imagine. The whole nation assembles together to seek the Lord. How amazing. How great. Well, verses 5 and 6, back to the ancient Near East. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of Yahweh, that is, in the Jerusalem temple, before the new court, and said, O Yahweh, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. In these two verses, Jehoshaphat states unassailable facts. Yes, indeed, Yahweh is God in heaven. Yes, indeed, God rules over all the kingdoms of the nations. God is sovereign king, we need to understand, over the goings and the comings and the happenings and the fortunes of every nation on earth. And yes, indeed, no one anywhere ever is able to withstand the all-powerful, almighty God of the universe. Jehoshaphat begins his prayer by stating facts, we need to notice, facts that exalt the Lord. Jehoshaphat praises the Lord with these facts that come out of his mouth. He recognizes and he confesses the awesome glory of the Lord. And then watch this. The next place Jehoshaphat goes in his prayer is to the history of this great God, to the mighty acts that this God performed in the past and on behalf of his people. Verse 7, did you not, our God, past history, drive out the inhabitants of this land, this very land that we're standing in right now, Drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. Yes, O Lord, in keeping with what you had promised to Abraham so many years ago, did you not raise up Joshua to lead your people in the conquest of Canaan, giving your people the land and then making them secure in the land under David? Verses 8 and 9. And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary, this temple of Solomon, for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, 
the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear, Lord, and save. In verse 9, Jehoshaphat is doing what? He's appealing to the prayer that Solomon had prayed at the dedication of the temple. Jehoshaphat is repeating to the Lord the pleading of Solomon that the Lord would hear his people's cries from his temple, would save his people in their time of trouble. Well, now they were in a time of trouble with this massive invading army encroaching and sitting right at their door. Verses 10 and 11, Jehoshaphat continues his prayer. And now behold, the men, now he's in the present, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let, listen to this, who would you, whom you would not let Israel invade, when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit? The situation that Jehoshaphat describes here that he reminds the Lord about is the situation recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 2 when Israel had just freshly been coming out of their bondage in Egypt, God had forbidden them from engaging in conflict with the very same people groups who were now threatening to invade Jehoshaphat's Judah. God had forbidden Israel from seizing land from the descendants of Lot and Esau from the Moabites, Ammonites, and the Munites, since God had given these groups their land. If we were to paraphrase what Jehoshaphat is saying here, it might go something like this. As our ancestors in Israel were coming out of Egypt, they had every opportunity to wage war against these people groups and take all of their land. But our people, Lord, they obeyed you. They refrain from doing so at your command. And now, these people groups want to slap us in the face by threatening to take our land by force. Where's the gratitude? Verse 12. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? Jehoshaphat prays now, that divine judgment would be levied against these ingrates. He prays for God's judgment to be pressed against this massive military alliance of Ammon and Moab and the people of Mount Seir. And then we get, friends, an absolutely beautiful and very profound confession. Jehoshaphat says to God, for we are, what? Powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. And what? We do not know what to do. Please notice the reality 
that comes out of Jehoshaphat's mouth here. Jehoshaphat isn't interested in playing any games. He recognizes and he confesses before God and before this assembly of Judah that he's standing in, he confesses that he and the nation with him are powerless before such a great and massive enemy. And he says, we don't know what to do. Now, isn't this just so human and so real? I need an amen this morning. Maybe someone here today is in a threatening situation right now where you're recognizing your powerlessness, your weakness, your total weakness, your lack of ability, and you don't know what to do. You just don't know what to do. It's confounding. Some trouble some situation, some grievous danger is facing you and you are at your wit's end. You're reeling. You can't find a solution to your quandary. The limits of your knowledge and the limits of your ability to solve this thing have long since come to an end. What will you do? Well, I encourage you, please, please, hear the word of the Lord and be a doer of the part that comes next in the verse. Jehoshaphat says, we are powerless. We lack a solution, but what? Our eyes are on you, Lord. Our focus is on you and not on our consternating situation. What a position of strength this is, my friends, in our utter powerlessness to have our eyes on the one in whose hand are power and might, verse 6, and to not take our eyes off of him. What a difference it makes as branches to be connected to the vine, yes, and to know that apart from him we can do nothing, but with him, all things are possible. What a blessing to live into the reality that his grace is indeed sufficient for our every trial. Praise Jesus. Well, God is on the scene here for Jehoshaphat and for Judah. Verse 13, another gorgeous description now of the fact that this is a community time of pleading before the Lord in the nation's distress. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before Yahweh with their little ones, their wives, notice, and their children. The kids are with them. Verse 14, watch God here. Keep your eyes on him. And the spirit of Yahweh came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. So now the spirit of God is going to speak through this Levite named Jehaziel. According to this verse, Jehaziel's lineage, if we trace it back, it's a musical lineage that stretches back to Asaph in the time of David. 
The Lord said, or perhaps he sang out of Jehaziel's mouth, or through Jehaziel's mouth, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. Do not be afraid, this is God speaking, do not be afraid and do, do not be dismayed at this great horde. Why? For the battle is not yours, but God's. Repeat that with me. For the battle is not yours, but God's. The 1.16 million troops of Judah can stand down because the battle belongs to one infinitely more powerful than they are. The battle belongs to the divine warrior, to God himself. Oh, friends, to have faith in the divine warrior. Lord, increase our faith. Verse 16, tomorrow go down against them. And then notice God gives his own perfect intelligence report here. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You know where Ziz is, Jehoshaphat, right? They're going to come up by this ascent. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. So God gives the pinpoint GPS location of the attackers. Now, I'm not going to bore you with the topographical analysis here. Suffice it to say that the army guys that are listening to this prophecy, the army guys who are listening to this precise geographical description of where these attackers will be, they know that this particular information gives their army some real advantages if they want to mount an attack of their own. The army guys are probably getting a little excited now, and they're gaining confidence in their ability to win this thing. But then what happens? God pulls the rug out in the next verse. He says, oh, by the way, you will not need to fight in this battle. <laughs> what? You will not need to fight in this battle. Don't worry about getting your maps out. Don't worry about strategizing, sharpening your swords, organizing flanking maneuvers. You will not need to fight in this battle. He says, stand firm, hold your position. That is, re remain passive. Stay put. Take your seat in the stadium and watch the action with your popcorn as the game unfolds before you. Stand firm and hold your position and see the salvation of Yahweh on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord Yahweh will be with you. Blessed thought the Lord will be with you. The language in verse 17 reminds us, of course, of an earlier moment in Israel's history. That great moment at the Red Sea, when they were coming up out of Egypt with Pharaoh's army in hot pursuit. In that moment of Israel's fear, listen to this, Moses had said to the people in Exodus 14, 13, fear not, 
stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh. And in the next verse, Moses had said, Yahweh will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Well, as the Lord speaks through Jehaziel in our passage in 2 Chronicles 20, he is specifically hearkening back to those words in Exodus chapter 14. He's saying that the, the, the deliverance that he's about to give Israel in this moment against the, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Munites, this is going to be like a new Red Sea moment. It will be another mighty demonstration of the great power and the supreme ability and the rescuing chutzpah of the Lord God omnipotent. Verse 18, the appropriate response in this moment is worship. Jehoshaphat had been full of fear in verse 3, and now he's full of worship. There's been a change in Jehoshaphat. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head, get the picture, bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before Yahweh, worshiping Yahweh, and the worship service then gets raucous, it gets boisterous, it's okay if you want to get boisterous this morning. Verse 19, as we're praising the Lord, verse 19, and the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, with what? A very loud voice. The decibel level goes up. And then having spent themselves in worship, they all go home to their beds to get a good night's rest. Verse 20, and they rose early in the morning. Their phones went off at 4 a.m. And went into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, hear me. Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, in this particular situation, as Judah is about to square off, get the pic they're about to square off against this massive enemy alliance. We might expect the king in this moment to give a Churchillian speech of some sort in this crucial moment, right? We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. You know that great speech from Churchill, World War II? But notice where Jehoshaphat goes here. He says to the people, what? Believe in Yahweh your God, my friends, this morning, Believe in Yahweh your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. What's Jehoshaphat's focus? It's to have faith in God. Yes? Jehoshaphat has gone from being fearful, in verse 3, to being an evangelist for faith in God here. In verse 20, he's calling for trust in God. 
instead of calling for people's resolve to fight with their own resources and with their own wits. Oh, for us to have faith in this great God. Verse 21, again, we notice the community nature of this whole story. The verse begins by telling us that Jehoshaphat, notice, he took counsel with the people. This is a community project. The king makes the people partners in this whole situation. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to Yahweh and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to Yahweh for his chesed, his steadfast love endures forever. Now notice this, what, 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 what? what, is Josh, what does Jehoshaphat do here? He makes sure, get this, he makes sure that singers are leading the charge. You notice that? He makes sure that vocalists are first on the front lines. Instead of ordering his elite Marines to lead the charge, Marines who would be suited up head to toe in body armor, carrying the best weaponry. Jehoshaphat puts a choir <laughs> in the front, a choir that is dressed not in armor, but in the holy vestments of worship. So that the, the, the most important thing here, friends, as the divine warrior goes out to battle against this enemy alliance, the most important thing is that a song of praise to God is being belted out on the front lines. And the song they sing at the end of verse 21 is Psalm 136. Give thanks to Yahweh for his hesed, his steadfast love, endures forever. We need to see this. Worship singing. Why, did, why do we devote time to singing in this church? Because worship singing and praise music is so hugely important for us as God's people. Verse 22, notice how this goes. And when they began to sing in praise, so they're singing and they're praising, when the people begin to exalt Yahweh and glorify him and praise him and magnify him with their voices, then, right in the midst of the joyous praise, then what happened? Yahweh set an ambush, Yahweh set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come up against Judah so that they were, what? Routed. Notice that the defeat of the enemy, so important for the people of God, the defeat of the enemy happens here in the middle of worship. Yes? The defeat of the enemy happens concurrent with worship. The overcoming of the fearful crisis happens as the people are praising. Yahweh does this. The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. And verse 23 gives us the details of what actually went down. Notice, for the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. 
And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. Wow. Breathtaking and sobering, the ability of our God, is it not? Now there's some mystery here to be sure. Verse 22 told us that Yahweh set an ambush. And verse 23 tells us about the total collapse of the enemy alliance as they all turned their swords on one another. So we ask the question, did, did the divine warrior supernaturally expose some treachery within their ranks that then caused this fatal melee? Did God work some sort of powerful confusion into the enemy so that it just simply self-destructed like this? Well, we can't be sure, totally, but what we can be sure of, friends, let's, news, let's not lose sight of what we can be sure of, we can be sure that God wins. God has defeated what threatened his people, yes? God has fought for his people, and God, once again, has been triumphant. Perfect track record. Verses 24 and 25, notice when Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness. So now get the picture. They're up high and they are overlooking the wilderness down below. They look toward the horde and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat, whose name means, by the way, the Lord will judge, and the Lord has judged here in, in answer to the prayer of Jehoshaphat. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. And then notice the next part. They were how many days in taking the spoil? Three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. So God's people, just as they had plundered the enemy Egyptians at the time of the Exodus, now for three days they plunder the defeated enemy alliance. Verses 26 through 28. On the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Barakah. The, the word Barakah means blessing. They meet there, for there they blessed Yahweh. Makes sense, Barakah, blessing. Therefore, the name of the place has been called the Valley of Blessing, the Valley of Barakah, to this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem, how? Somberly? With joy, for Yahweh had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets, to the temple, to the house of Yahweh. Near the start of this chapter, the people's gathering at the temple had been a nervous and fearful occasion. Now after God's mighty victory, they meet at the temple with rejoicing and joy and more music. And we wonder here, we have to wonder if the people at this moment, what were they singing? 
Maybe they were singing Psalm 24 as they came into the temple. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. In verse 29, the chronicler tells us that after God's astounding victory, what happened? The fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that Yahweh had fought against the enemies of Israel. So now what happens is the fame and the great reputation of God goes international here because of the power that he has just displayed. Awe of God spreads far and wide. And then the story ends in verse 30. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. The story had started with the panic and the rumble of the pending invasion, and now it ends with the quiet and the rest that God has brought about. Now, friends, remember how Jehoshaphat had received intelligence in verse 2? Some men had come to Jehoshaphat to explain to detail the trouble that he was in. With this very formidable, scary enemy now at their doorstep. We need to understand, my friends, that the whole Bible is intelligence that God has given to us. Among other things, the Bible describes the great trouble that we are in. We are born, each of us, into this sin-sick world and we are surrounded by a formidable, powerful enemy. The intelligence report that is the Bible calls the devil our enemy, our adversary. He is a murderer and a destroyer, Abaddon, and the father of lies. He is the deceiver of the whole world who accuses us day and night before God. Please understand this morning that the devil hates you and the devil hates me. Further, according to the intelligence report, on top of a very real devil, we also have death, which 1 Corinthians 15, 26 calls our enemy. Maybe you feel a sense of fear and helplessness when you drive by, drive by Mount Royal, the cemetery, recognizing that you too, one day, will be lying in the earth. Maybe this enemy called death makes you afraid. 
like Jehoshaphat was. To make matters even worse, the intelligence report that is the Bible also declares that human beings outside of Christ are slaves to sin, that's your identity outside of Christ, and captive to the law of sin. Slaves and captives. And so we're all faced with this gigantic, monstrous, three-pronged enemy called sin, death, and the devil. Formidable. Formidable. And in the face of this three-pronged enemy, looking at it in all sobriety, okay, looking at it in all sobriety, we feel just like Jehoshaphat and the people, powerless. We don't know what to do. We find ourselves cornered in what appears to be a hopeless situation. There's nowhere to run. All a person can do is cry out to God. Oh God, in your hand are power and might, so that none is with, able to withstand you. Not the devil, not death, not the problem of sin. None of it is able to withstand you. Oh God, oh God, will you not execute judgment on our enemy? Our eyes are on you. And the Lord in his grace says to us who have sinned against him, you will not need to fight this battle. I will. The battle is not yours, but God's. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. In our weakness, friends, and in our powerlessness, the Lord has looked upon us with compassion. Amen? And what has he done? He has set an ambush against sin, death, and the devil. Romans 5, 6 while we, all of us, were still weak, weak, powerless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And at the cross, says Colossians 1.13, he has delivered all the helpless who believe from the domain of darkness, so from our fierce enemy's power, and he has transferred us to, he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, hallelujah, and praise God and praise the son of God, Jesus Christ, and praise the Holy Spirit. On his cross, dear people, he has simply knocked the lights out of sin, death, and the devil. He has broken their backs on our behalf. In divine warrior fashion, according to Colossians 2.15, listen to, listen to the military language, he has disarmed, he has stripped all the power from the satanic rulers 
and authorities, and he has put them to open shame by doing what? By triumphing over them in him. 1 John 3.8, the Son of God appeared to do what? To destroy the works of the devil. And rest assured, friends, his campaign has been a complete, total, rousing success. And now he calls people everywhere to repent. Acts 17.30, to recognize your dire condition and to turn to the one you have sinned against for his forgiveness and for his abundant life. My friend, if you haven't already done so, repent today. Believe the good news of Jesus this very hour. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are mighty, you are great, you are wonderful, you are faithful, you are our loving God who has sought us and bought us with your blood, your redeeming blood. Lord God, we praise and thank you. And I pray for each and every one of us as we go into a fresh week that your victorious power would be our portion. Follow us everywhere we go, Lord. Remind us of your goodness. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.